0: Welcome to the Hydric & Struggles Leadership Podcast. Hydric is the premier global provider of senior level executive search and leadership consulting services. Diversity and inclusion, leading through tumultuous times, and building thriving teams and organizations are among the core issues we talk with leaders about every day, including in our podcasts. Thank you for joining the conversation. Hi, I'm Angela Gardner. I'm partner in charge of Hydric Struggles Los Angeles office and a member of the Consumer Markets Practice. In today's podcast, I'm talking to Danny Brooks. We connected with Danny at UCLA Anderson School of Management's recent human resources retreat and are delighted to be able to continue the conversation. Danny started his career as a chef at a world-famous restaurant. He then spent time at IDEO before joining Starbucks, where he held two roles, Vice President of Food for Global Product Innovation and Vice President of Innovation Culture and Methodologies. Today, Danny is brand archaeologist working at the intersection of data, strategy, and storytelling. He is co-founder at Penrose, a strategy consulting firm that puts company DNA at the center of all decision making. Danny, it's great to see you here today. Thanks for joining. Did I get that right?
1: You did. It sounds like a mouthful when I hear it. Maybe I need to shorten all of these titles, but you you got it exactly right.
0: Cool. Well, thank you. So maybe we can get started with company DNA. Can you talk to us about that and how brands and archaeology go together?
1: Yes. So my journey towards the words company DNA is a long one. I spent a lot of time working in what a lot of folks refer to as brand. And what I found was that in describing brand i would spend you know 30 or 40% of that conversation describing what i didn't do you know i don't do logos i don't do brand voice font color all of the things that a lot of people think about when they hear the word brand and as i kind of ventured out of the creative realm i needed a term that would resonate with folks that didn't require so much explanation and i spent time with my team thinking about that And we really started thinking about what is it that we're focused on? And what we're focused on are the unique qualities and characteristics that define an organization. And the funny thing is, if you replace the word organization with organism, you have the literal definition of DNA. And so we started referring to it as company DNA. I don't think we created the term, but company DNA, we define that as the unique qualities and characteristics that define an organization. So that's the first half of the question, what's company DNA? The second thing that you asked was about brand and archeology. span So archeology span really came about first as kind of a protective mechanism. We would go in to companies and think about these unique qualities and characteristics. And the greatest fear that we encountered was that we were gonna come in and kind of write and define who these folks were. And that's not at all what we do. What we look for is we look for how those unique qualities and characteristics are brought to life, how people interact with each other, how the organization is perceived. And all of that work is essentially artifact finding. And we use those artifacts to kind of create and articulate that company DNA. So rather than architects, we come in and think of ourselves as archaeologists.
0: Awesome. Thank you. So When we spoke before, you talked about Starbucks and the brand there emanating from the inside out. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how that emanates? I guess there's a sort of a a DNA piece to that as well.
1: Yeah, I think the way that we think about DNA is there's this kind of internal intention. You know, who do you want to be? How do you want to show up in the world? What are your aspirations and goals? And that is the, what we call internal DNA. It's where founders and leaders kind of portray who they are through the organization. The other half of DNA is perception. So how is the organization perceived by stakeholders, perceived by the people that it touches? In Starbucks case, you know, that's, Baristas, its customers, its vendors, supply chain, marketers, consultants, all these people touch Starbucks and they're part of that DNA as well. Where it starts is Howard Schultz had a concept 30, 40 years ago to take this idea of creating an American coffee shop. And that is where the DNA began, was from that founder, his intention. And as the company grew, that DNA became informed by its stakeholders as well.
0: Got it. And then it's intrinsically culture and brand together.
1: Culture and brand, you know, this is uh, something that I feel very strongly about. As you'll notice, I have a lot of strong opinions. I believe that culture is the internal expression of company DNA or brand, as you put it. And then I believe that a company's offering, its services, its products, its environments, its communications are the external expression of company DNA. But they're defined by the same organizing framework. And what I mean by that is if Starbucks, the word, let's say, connection, we've heard about the third place, that's where people connect over coffee. That idea of connection is innate to its culture, meaning the way that we interact is going to be in a highly personal way. We're going to see each other. We're going to talk to each other about our lives outside of work. And that's the offering. That is the space that we hold for our customers is a place for them to interact, for them to interact with our baristas, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea is that that DNA, that unique quality and characteristic of Starbucks might be connection.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. So now can we talk a little bit about data? How should organizations be thinking about all of the data they have available in the context of company DNA?
1: Well, if company DNA are the unique qualities and characteristics of an organization, data is what tells you about the health of those qualities and characteristics. So data, first thing it does is it needs to be mapped in a specific way to who you are and what you find important. Off the shelf data, you know, if we find out customers like coffee... It doesn't really tell you anything about what you should do. But if you know that you use coffee as a means of creating interpersonal connection, you can start looking for data that makes sense to your organization. And so company DNA is the organizing framework for both strategy, for your offering, and for how you evaluate whether you've been successful or not, if you're meeting people's needs or not. And so company DNA gives you the priority and the way to synthesize data so that it makes sense uniquely to you. Otherwise, it's just, you know, it's the weather. It's general.
0: Got it. Thank you. How should we most effectively use data to connect with our diverse internal and external stakeholders?
1: It's a complex question. I would say that the first thing, most importantly, is to make it available. What I see in most organizations that I interact with is data is hidden and protected for many different reasons. Some of them could be legal. Some of them could be that people want a competitive advantage within the company. Some of them feel that data exposes weakness or it gives away strength to competitors. The most important thing is that if data is not accessible, data is not used. And that makes people rely on intuition and that gets us into all kinds of problems when it comes to DE&I, because it's going to be the intuition of the powerful that determines how people go about their jobs, as opposed to data, which has diversity and inclusion problems, but is still better than the opinion of a single individual with power. And so, number one, democratize it. Number two, I would say is don't be afraid of bad news. You need a from if you're going to transform to a two, and that from is not going to be great news all the time. If your organization strives to be more diverse, you need to have a really good, long, hard look in the mirror, in the data mirror, to understand where you are today. Otherwise, you cannot measure progress. And so if you don't share that data because it's bad news, you also cannot share progress. What you end up doing is congratulating yourself for doing something bad.
0: Got it. So keeping that in mind and thinking about the emerging workforce, 30% of the workforce this year is going to be Gen Z. How do we use the data to, and I know you've done a lot of work around generational analysis. How do we use that data? Maybe you can give us some high level findings from your research.
1: Well, the first thing I would say about generations is that it is a construct. So generations are not a real thing. They are a thing that researchers use in order to study a cohort and that cohort's behaviors. So that's number one. So everything I say is going to be a generalization. The second thing I want to say is our expectation is that let's take millennials, for example. Millennials, they spend a lot of time on screens we assume that the next generation is going to be more of the same but you know at a higher rate it's going to be more screens it's going to be you know similar but a variation on the previous generation in reality cohorts tend to be reactions to the previous generation rather than amplifications of the previous generation so given that this is a construct i would say what i find most fascinating about gen z is that they both feel extremely stressed about our future. And that's to the tune of about 86% of Gen Z states that they feel significantly or somewhat stressed about our nation's future. So we're talking about America, the United States here. They feel eager to work. So 77% feel like they're going to work harder than the previous generation. They expect their jobs to impact the world at about 60%. And because of that, 88% of this generation feels optimistic about their own personal future. So you have this incredible pragmatism inside of Gen Z, an incredible grit and willingness to work, and a feeling that they have control over their future, and therefore, it's an optimistic future. I think that that is very refreshing, as an older Gen Xer here. and. Extremely accurate as to what I see in the world and from these folks.
0: That's fascinating. So with that in mind, what should we as leaders be doing to lead more effectively?
1: I think the most important thing is to make as few assumptions as possible. I think that leaders believe their experience is a shared experience. I think they believe that their path to leadership is a common path to leadership. In reality, given that most leaders are white and male, that leadership path is not a common path. It's not accessible to most people. And I think leaders need to be curious about the paths that particularly this generation is interested in taking rather than making any assumptions based on their own experience or what they've seen in millennials, the previous generation. Gen Z is different. Gen Z wants a seat at the table, deserves a seat at the table, and should be asked and taken seriously how they feel they'd like to best proceed in their path of growth and what makes them feel good. Those are things that leaders spend so much time guessing and making assumptions and looking at surveys rather than actually looking someone in the eyes and asking them a question. The other thing I'd say, Angela, is to the looking in the eyes and asking them a question. Gen Z prefers real-life interactions by a lot. They don't trust, again, I'm generalizing here, but they don't trust digital interactions in the same way that we may right here on this Zoom call because they understand how digital interactions are used to mislead and deceive. And they prefer to look you in the eye and have a real conversation with you. So I'll add that. Be curious and look someone in their actual eyes, not in their digital eyes. It's
0: incredible how we're sort of seeing circles come through in behaviors. That's uh, very, very interesting. Thank you. So Hydric Struggles recently published a survey of 420 executives across eight countries. And we were looking at how they're trying to keep pace with change in their organizations. The interesting thing is the data show that employees are at the center of why de matters and how it contributes to the company's success both internally and externally. I'd love to sort of hear your reaction to that.
1: I think it's great news. Let's start there. I think it's excellent news, first of all, that the question's being asked and the answer's being prioritized and acted against. I think that that's great news because of the importance of the theme. My second reaction to it is that the organization, the person it touches with most frequency is the employee, and so it makes sense because we're talking about forty hours a week rather than four instances or four intersections a week that the employee would be absolutely the center of attention when it came to DE and I. The last thing I would say is that if the company seeks to impact or interact with a broad and diverse audience, it must. Have a broad and diverse audience that feels included and a sense of belonging internally if it ever hopes to have that externally. If an organization is broken from a DEI standpoint inside, it can never expect to resonate with a diverse audience externally. That is fundamental in its DEI journey.
0: Thank you. I really appreciate your feedback. So, just one last question for you. For company DNA to be effective, who are the stakeholders that need to be at the table?
1: So I take a very broad approach. If we are talking about company DNA as the unique qualities and characteristics that define an organization, and we truly prescribe the idea that that emerges internally from leadership and externally from all stakeholders, it means everybody. It really means everyone that is in touch with your Brand, everyone that your brand impacts. So that goes from obviously your employees and your customers, but your supply chain and your vendors and procurement, your partners, even at some points, your competitors help to define who you are. So, an example of that is competitors love to talk about differentiation. And what they're saying is, I am this, and no one else is. That no one else is helps to define everyone else. And so I think about it in kind of spheres of influence. So in the center, you have your leaders, your founder, maybe you have another sphere outside of that. That's about the community inside your employees. Maybe you have another sphere outside of that. That's your customers. And then you have outside of that, your vendors and your supply chain and your purveyors. And it kind of keeps expanding each circle, having a different weight of influence defining your company DNA. But each of them having a seat at that table.
0: Danny, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Before we go, any final thoughts on how we should engage our employees and customers differently in the future?
1: I think that if I were to leave you with one thought, it's that most businesses are operating from the perspective exclusively finance, transaction frequency, even if you're internal thinking about culture employee acquisition, onboarding costs, training costs, everything is always kind of boiled down to the number. Those numbers are exactly the same in every organization on the planet. Same groupings of numbers, same targets. There is nothing different between your organization and your competitor's organization. With company DNA, with a clear code, that defines who you are, who you serve, what you serve them, why they need it from you, those numbers are given context. And that is the context that allows you to serve human beings and your business as opposed to just your financial bottom line. Both are important, you need financial context, but without that human context, you're a machine and not an organization, organism. And so it is incredibly important. In fact, it is an imperative to think about the humanity of your organization and not just the costs and the P&L of your organization.
0: Amazing. Thank you. I hope we can do this again soon.
1: Thank you so much. It was fun.
0: Take care. Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. To make sure you don't miss more future-shaping ideas and conversations, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast app. And if you're listening via LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube, why not share this with your connections? Until next time.